Welcome back. Today, we will take a look at sepsis, Ebola, and COVID-19. This session is chaired by Emmanuel Nesutibu from the United Arab Emirates, and we have an amazing lineup of speakers once again. If you want to listen to one specific speaker, please use the chapter markers. If you want to see the presentations of the speakers, please go to YouTube and search for WSC Spotlight there. Without further ado, over to Emmanuel to get us started. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Uh, my name is Emmanuel Sutebu, Infectious Disease Physician and Chief for Infectious Diseases at Sheikh Shagbut Medical City in Abu Dhabi, UAE. Uh, it's a pleasure to chair this session, and you're all very welcome. This is a very topical session, the fourth session of the World Sepsis Congress Spotlight on sepsis, Ebola, and COVID-19, linking sepsis with emerging infection. So clearly very topical with the COVID-19 pandemic. We've got some excellent speakers who I'm sure are going to educate, engage, and perhaps even entertain you. And so we look forward to this, to the great uh, presentations um, which we're gonna have in this session. Each speaker is going to have 10 minutes to present, and then there'll be three minutes of questions and answers. So I would urge you to use the chat box to pose your questions, and I will choose some questions to, to um, ask the speakers. Without much ado, I'd like to um, present our first speaker, who's going to give us a keynote presentation on the World Health Organization Clinical Response to Sepsis, COVID-19, and sepsis. Our first speaker is Janet Dyers, who I know very well as she is a member of the advisory board of the African Sepsis Alliance, which I chair. She is an accomplished specialist in pulmonary and critical care medicine with expertise in clinical medicine and global health. Since 2018, Janet has worked as the lead for the clinical unit that is responsible for readiness and response to emerging infectious diseases, including COVID-19 and Ebola and other emergencies. And she's, she's part of the WHO emergency, which is part of the WHO emergency program. So without much ado, I'll pass the floor to Janet to give the keynote presentation. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Emmanuel. I hope you can hear me. So I will proceed. Um, thank you for the introduction and uh, we'll get to it. Uh, it is a privilege um, to be here and I welcome all the guests and my fellow uh, speakers um, to this very important event and I hope everyone has been enjoying so far and continues to enjoy and learn from each other. I have three objectives. One is to discuss the recognition of sepsis and emergent infectious diseases. Two is to remind you that we must do the basics well, and that includes infection prevention and control and supportive care. And three, that research and innovation during outbreaks is really a must. Just to give you the one slide of which I'm, has been the hot topic of this whole meeting um, is sepsis. So yeah, the sepsis in emerging infectious diseases. And just to remind you of the definition that was published in 2016 about sepsis-3, life-threatening organ dysfunction, 
caused by dysregulated host response to infection. So the tissue, the body's response to an infection injures its own tissues and organs. And this is straight from this article. Now let's jump to Ebola disease. I want everyone to be aware there is still an ongoing Ebola outbreak. This most recent outbreak started on the 1st of June in Bandaka, uh, which is in the western part of DRC, a very um, remote area of DRC. And to date, we have 113 confirmed cases and 48 deaths. On the map, you will see Bandaka and also see the eastern part of uh, Congo DRC, uh, which had a prolonged outbreak from 2018 until just recently in 20, uh, June of 2020, where there was a total of 3,463 cases, 2,280 deaths. And then, of course, highlighting at the bottom, the West African Ebola outbreak, which many of you are, are aware of. Oh, oops. But what do we know now about the clinical presentation of Ebola? These are two nice uh, review slides that I found in the literature really looking at the early disease where you can see some nonspecific features of uh, fever, malaise, lethargy, and then within three or 10 days starting to see the uh, GI phase, which is what classically people consider di diarrhea, vomiting, and at that point patients unable to take enough oral fluids in order to compensate for their progressive dehydration. And then the complicated phase, which is about a week or more in, where patients then do develop the overt hemorrhagic signs, shock, respiratory failure, multi-organ failure, neurological failure, renal failure, and eventually death. You can see some of the laboratory abnormalities listed uh, in the table on the right, and mortality ranging uh, overall between 40 and 70%, varying by outbreak in countries, um, and even uh, reported lower mortality reported in West Africa and high-income countries at that time. The next series of slides, I won't talk too much because uh, there's too much detail, but really to highlight, again, uh, a nice review article on the pathophysiology of inflammation leading to organ failure. So the activation of uh, B cells and inflammatory cells, the, the progression of uh, injury to the liver and activation of macrophages, more um, uh, inflammatory response, and finally leading to the injury of endothelial cells, which will then lead to... Uh, of course, organ failure. I'm going to step on to sepsis and COVID. So as of the 8th of September, we have over 200 million confirmed cases of COVID-19 that have been reported to the WHO and nearly 900 deaths. To the right, you can see uh, slides that we produce on a, on a regular basis, just looking at the impact of cases on the top per million population, the darkest colors with the most dense number of cases. And on the bottom, the purple showing the deaths per million cases, those in the darkest purple hue also with the highest number of cases. And you can start to see where the burden of disease is at this moment in time. What do we know about the clinical presentation? Uh, of course, patients may present, the majority may will present with mild disease, and that's a range of symptoms listed here. But we do know that a subset of patients do present with severe and critical COVID. And the syndrome that is described in the literature, I'm just summarizing here, includes acute respiratory distress, acute kidney injury, coagulopathy, altered mental status, progressive acute respiratory distress syndrome, and in some cases, cardiogenic instability shock leading to death. Mortality um, is hard to elucidate uh, overall because the CFR varies widely based on the testing strategy, as well as the mortality rates in hospitals. We are 
understanding the risk factors for disease, as many of you already know, older age, male gender, underlying non-communicable diseases, smoking, obesity, as well as some biomarkers. And what do we know about the pathophysiology? And so this is, these are, you know, to, uh, just a recent uh, review. Again, these are things that are, that are plausible pathophysiology. That's things we still need to learn about the disease. And so here we can see, of course, activation, um, you know, infection of the alveolar epithelial cells, activation of macrophages, and then injury to endothelial cells through the inflammatory cascades and activation of the coagulation cascade. So what does that mean now? So, so I was asked, is sepsis, COVID-19, Ebola? I think I've shown you that, you know, severe COVID, severe Ebola disease is sepsis. It looks like sepsis clinically. And you can see from the inflammatory dysregulation uh, that that is um, likely the pathway to organ failure and death. So what can we do? So we do the basics well. And here I want to make a push for IPC and supportive care. What's the face, what we face during outbreaks there are many complicated issues, as you know, especially during this pandemic. The first thing we worry is healthcare worker infections, because at the beginning of an outbreak, the IPC appropriate measures may not be implemented, and so healthcare workers become infected and may die. We are fearful of the lack of effective antiviral agents. If it's a new disease, we don't know what to give. We, we know that there are supportive care interventions, however, that we use in sepsis and other severe infections, but it's indirectly then applied to either Ebola or COVID. And then resource scarcity, staff, supplies, structure, symptoms. These may, the system may not be ready to take the increased flood of patients from the outbreak in whatever resource setting you are in. And that will amplify disease spread, mortality, and distrust in the community. So it is imperative to do the basics well. Screen, isolate, implement IPC. That's the first step. So during the outbreak, this is crucially important. With someone with an emergent infectious disease may present with sepsis, you must recognize the patient early and start IPC. At the first point of contact, notify your public health officials, but do not delay triage and clinical assessment. So here, those two things have to be done simultaneously to keep the health worker safe and to give the patient the treatment they need. For this outbreak, we developed the COVID care pathway. And again, this was just really to highlight the importance of screening so that patients can enter into a pathway where, full, where the appropriate infection prevention control measures are put into place, but not to delay the acuity-based triage that needs to happen to find those patients that need emergency care, the clinical assessment, and then, of course, uh, the decisions of where to admit the patients. The second step is to provide optimized supportive care. And in Ebola, this is what, uh, you know, we, we focused actually, I spent a, a very long time in DRC during uh, uh, when the Ebola outbreak started in the eastern part of DRC. I won't speak too much because my good colleague Richard Kojan will speak about this a little bit later. But what did we, what did we learn about the management for supportive care? And these are evidence-based guidelines that you can find, recognize dehydration and sepsis and treat with fluids. So that's number one, monitor and correct abnormal electrolytes and hypoglycemia, give transfusions for severe anemia, give oxygen if respiratory distress, and of course, rehabilitation, nutrition, and psychosocial care. And this, we adapted the evidence-based guidelines and developed an optimized supportive care protocol for Ebola virus disease, which was used uh, in the DRC, this most recent um, outbreaks. How about optimized supportive care for COVID-19? Again, I think one of our colleagues will discuss this a little bit more. 
But we had to start with something. So we published our earliest guideline actually in February, and this is the most recent published in May. But again, the same basics, screen, triage, cl clinical assessment, monitor for oxygen, give oxygen if in distress, recognize sepsis, treat appropriately with fluids, monitor and treat complications as we've seen, thrombosis, neurological dysfunctions, monitor for ARDS, and provide safe, appropriate respiratory support, which may include non-invasive high-flow IMV, bundled with safe sedation and liberation protocols, and of course, rehab, nutrition, and psychosocial care. And you can see three important documents that are available on our website on the supportive care and the safe care of um, patients with COVID. But what else did we have to deal with for COVID-19 was the supply structure and staff. So the WHO set up a global supply chain system to ensure access to life-saving biomedical equipment and scale-up of oxygen. And the focus here was, of course, the concern of countries that do not have strong oxygen system, systems, as we knew that even in some of the most resource settings that the oxygen systems were strained in some of the older hospitals in various cities. So here are the tools that we have about scaling up, understanding your biomedical um, equipment at facility level so you can scale up how to make your center or repurpose your hospital um, to make it safe, so a sorry treatment center uh, manual. And then just to highlight that WHO, along with its consortium of many partners and with WFP, delivering over 13,000 concentrators to the countries that you see in dark blue. Lastly, research and innovation during outbreaks is a must, and this should happen in any setting. In Ebola, outbreak in DRC, which is in the east part, an active conflict zone for 20 years, we were able to conduct with multiple partners under the global collaboration of the Institute, National Institute of Biomedical Research, the INRB from the DRC, under Professor uh, Jean-Jacques Muyembe's leadership, as well hosted by the NIH uh, and with partners MSF, IMC, Alima, and WHO. This trial, the Pomoja Tulinda Maisha trial, which is in um, Swahili, uh, which means together saves lives. That enrolled 681 patients into a randomized trial looking at 28-day mortality. And in that trial found that MAB114 and Regeneron EB3, which are both monoclonal antibodies, reduced mortality when compared to ZMAP, which was the standard of care, significantly. And that remdesivir in this patient cohort had no uh, difference uh, compared to ZMAP. Also noted in that study was that fewer days of onset of symptoms, lower viral load, and lower creatinine and AST were associated with improved survival. And this was published late last year in the New England Journal. But therapeutics aren't enough. In DRC, we had to find and develop safe treatment units. But treatment units that enabled the care of optimized supportive care. And this was done through innovation. So the last outbreak in 2018 through 2020 in the eastern part of Congo, saw the development of new Ebola treatment unit designs. And on the top is what we will hear in more detail with, by Dr. Kojan, the uh, cube uh, that was used by the Alima group. And then integration of monitoring devices such as vital sign monitors, ultrasound, point of care testing, all allowing for individualized supportive care interventions. How about science and innovation in COVID-19? We know this is an incredibly <laughs> large field. The WHO convened in March, uh, published this in March 2020, but convened the meeting, I think, in, um, in, in late February. 
a coordinated call for global research for a novel coronavirus. Nine work streams were developed at that time to cover all aspects of research, uh, including social sciences, ethics, uh, clinical, etc. And the sepsis-related interventions, I think, are falling under multiple streams. One is the stream that I lead, which is a clinical characterization and management working group. Others in the candidate therapeutics and vaccine group, of which uh, our colleague Marco will uh, give us um, more details about. And of course, at IPC and healthcare worker protection. And so priorities were set at that time, of which our groups have been steadily working towards over the past uh, seven months, including the solidarity trials on therapeutics and vaccines, uh, prospective meta-analysis on other uh, uh, interventional studies uh, that are being done, working on oxygen scale-up with operational research, respiratory support, and reducing healthcare worker infections. Finally, through this work, we do finally have one evidence-based uh, strong recommendation for treatment in COVID-19, and this was published last week, which was a strong recommendation for the use of steroids for severe and critical COVID-19. And that was based on um, the large recovery trial in addition to six other trials that were pulled together into a prospective meta-analysis that was published last week at JAMA showing an absolute risk reduction of 8.7% in critically ill patients. Other interventions we're exploring now to see if there's a possibility to bring studies together because there are multiple ongoing smaller studies, um, which is, will make it difficult to uh, understand the results, um, including for anticoagulation and plasma therapy. A big priority right now is to continue on the operational research in low middle income countries or in resource limited settings to get a better sense of oxygen at facility level, to do an observational cohort study to understand patient oxygen consumption in order to prepare and get the places ready. And then test interventions for early respiratory support and how that impact outcomes, especially early respiratory support that before the need for invasive mechanical ventilation. And then look at innovative, respi uh, innovative respiratory devices that may be uh, applicable to certain settings uh, and at lower cost. So in conclusion, sepsis is a presentation of emerging infectious diseases such as Ebola and COVID-19 and needs to be detected promptly. Doing the basics well is necessary to reduce mortality. And the basics well is to screen, isolate, IPC, triage, clinical assessment, and supportive care interventions. And when available, give the effective and safe therapeutic when we know when that exists. And of course, monitor and evaluate your processes and outcomes in a quality manner. And finally, research and innovation is essential to improve our understanding of these diseases from clinical characterization to structural design and ventilation in IPC to therapeutics and vaccines. But large-scale coordinated trials are necessary and global coordination and collaboration is a must to get to the answers faster. So thank you. And I thank my big, big teams um, that work on COVID-19 and the teams that worked on Ebola with us in the field. Thank you, Janet, for that excellent presentation and a lot of take-home messages there. Uh, in the interest of time, I'm just going to ask you a few questions, if you don't mind. The first is about the reasons for the prolonged outbreak of Ebola in the DRC and um, role also of um, vaccination in controlling the outbreak in DRC. Thanks, Emmanuel, for those excellent questions. So 
the long duration of the outbreak in DRC, I think, revolves a lot about the context of which in which we were working in. The context um, of North Kivu uh, is a conflict zone uh, with a lot of uh, instability, um, which meant that there was uh, episodes of violence, episodes of insecurity that uh, would intermittently uh, stop operations. Uh, and I think if you would remember even at one point that uh, Ebola treatment units, two of them were burned down um, in the middle of the outbreak in Butembo and uh, required us to build back up. Despite that though, we tried, continued with setting up facilities, treating patients, doing vaccinations, doing contact tracings, but each time there was an event, things would slow down. And I think that was mostly the protracted. And of course, I didn't put a slide in or even a point about vaccines, but that was definitely an intervention that was used to control the outbreak, uh, the contact of contact, a strategic approach to vaccinations. Great, thank you, Jen. And, and this, since this is just such a, a topical um, presentation you've you've given, just a question about COVID-19 and Africa. Um, it's been a surprise uh, in terms on, in terms of the uh, unexpectedly apparent lower number than number of patients with COVID-19 in Africa, lower than most people expected, including uh, mortality and the need for critical care. Any thoughts from you, uh, also working the WHO, about why that may be the case? I think we still need more information to understand better the clinical characterization in Africa. And we are working on that with many partners right now, including Dr. Kojan, who will soon speak and may have his reflections on this important question. Um, you know, there is the possibility of the age of the of people in Africa being younger than the age that we're seeing, um, perhaps the mix of comorbidities, you know, those things that we do know are risk factors. Um, at the same time, uh, there is also concern that we may have, we are not testing as much. So whatever the denominator may be bigger, um, but but, but when you talk about the severely ill, the ones that would end up in hospital, the ones that you know would die in hospital, are we capturing all those and, and um, accurately with testing? I think there is still a, a question about that, but it does appear that it, there is less in Africa. And, and for that reason, we need to understand this both from the immunological side, if that is true, what is the pathophysiology and what are the risk factors that are happening in uh, that part of the world? Great, thank you, Janet. And um, in the interest of time, I think we'll move on to the next speaker. So thank you very much for your presentation and, and taking those questions. Thank you. Thank you. So our next presentation is going to be on managing sepsis in COVID-19 patients, special considerations. And I have the pleasure of presenting our next speaker with somebody I know well because she, She's a colleague from Abu Dhabi, UAE. Uh, Dr. Hala Abu Zaid is a consultant in critical care medicine and chair of critical care at the Tawam Hospital in um, Alain. Um, Hala it was also chair of the um, critical care council that led the coordination of the critical care response to COVID-19 in um, Abu Dhabi, which is part of, uh, of um, Saha, the Saha government health system. And she also ran the largest um, intensive care unit that looked after COVID-19 patients in, in Abu Dhabi. So clearly has 
an immense amount of experience looking after patients with COVID-19 as well as sepsis. So fairly well yeah, this presentation. And um, uh, I'll then pass the floor to Hala to present. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. And thank you very much, Emmanuel, for this generous uh, um, invite and introduction. And um, very uh, happy to be with you to uh, talk about an important topic, especially when it comes to critical care uh, support during the pandemic. And as our uh, honorable previous speaker mentioned, the definition of sepsis um, as a life-threatening organ dysfunction um, caused by dysregulated host response to infection is almost uh, the same definition that COVID-19 um, uh, carries as well in the context of ICU. And uh, basically, the severe COVID-19 is also characterized by multi-organ failure that includes all the uh, dimensions of severe sepsis, including hypertension and shock and, and respiratory failure, um, kidney failure, coagulation, abnormality, uh, and so forth. So um, basically, we are talking about um, a disease that mimicked um, sepsis, and we had so little that we knew about at the beginning of the pandemic, and that uh, faced us with a lot of challenges. Um, I don't have any disclosures. Um, at the moment, and I would dive into the United Arab Emirates uh, situation so far. We cured a lot of cases, and we are in uh, almost a green zone, although um, our infection rate is a little bit below 1%, perhaps 1% to 2% in some surges. But so far, we're doing very well, and this wouldn't have happened without the appropriate uh, primary care uh, strategic approach and the proper political leadership behind the disease and the pandemic control. And this set the whole country with all partners, strategic partners and stakeholders into action and motion to share the burden of the disease. And this is how we dealt with it at the other end within hospitals and within critical care units in all over the country. And uh, this uh, led to the fact that the testing, testing, testing and um, um, uh, contact tracing message that our WHO leaders were advocating for has managed to get the country into the uh, right direction and I think the country is winning with that. Uh, it's a beast and we have to tackle something that we didn't know about before within our critical care areas although sepsis is a known um, issue in critical care uh, in all our critical care we've had a fair knowledge of how to treat it but when it came with COVID-19 it, um, it was um, a bit of a problem. Some of us were uh, thrown off by how rapid the disease uh, progressed and uh, what we should do with all the data coming from all over the world, specifically China and later on Europe, around certain maneuvering in treating it. So we knew from the start that it's not behaving like SARS or it was not behaving like MERS. And we knew that sepsis as a whole paradigm kills. But if you figure it out early, people who survive not survive more than whoever did not survive. And that was the challenge, We, as if we were dealing with two sepsis or sepsis times two or sepsis square. And basically the whole symptoms and signs of COVID-19 mimics sepsis a great deal, especially when patients went into HDU or ICU areas. 
So, um, and we know from our surviving sepsis campaigns, we had clear instructions about how to treat sepsis, and I'm not going to go into those in much details, but it's uh, the ABCs of treating sepsis, including fluid management, uh, including lactate use, including immediate and timely antimicrobials use, including the use of steroids, and etc. But when it comes to uh, COVID-19, as we mentioned, the recommendations around COVID-19 started to come through with the beginning of the pandemic, and we collected a lot of data to help us and guide us not to derail, specifically around uh, organ support. Uh, for instance, um, vasoactive management and hemodynamic support was going around adding vasopressors that were evidence-based as per our surviving sepsis campaigns. And that was namely drugs that were available, like the norepinephrine or to a lesser extent vasopressins and epinephrine. So we tended to use all those to save lives. And uh, the most important um, issue that we dealt with in ICUs were the acute respiratory distress syndrome that was um, either developing so quickly uh, or developing um, later during the disease, but uh, with so many overlap with uh, different um, uh, other issues or problems. But we uh, concentrated in uh, the definition coming from the Berlin definition to how to classify the ARDS into the mild, the moderate, and the severe. And within the sepsis or the septic cohort of patients having COVID-19, I think we mainly dealt with moderate and severe ARDS within our critical care areas. And this is uh, to refresh people, uh, is any uh, uh, PF ratio less than 200 plus any of the radiographic uh, features or the uh, 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 ventilation-related uh, parameters that were deviating from norms, including the compliance readings and the um, uh, PEEP use. Now, uh, the rate of progression of COVID-19 and sepsis related to COVID-19 within IC when it affected the uh, lung was just of an acute onset and the rate was massive and quick and people swiftly went into a full-blown um, lung failure within few days, uh, perhaps less than three days. And uh, this was characterized more or less by severe shunting and possible small pulmonary emboli compared to the uh, acute respiratory distress syndrome that you used to see without the COVID-19 and uh, hence the difference. Now, other complications were seen in the form of acute kidney injury uh, and mostly 30% of our cohort in critical care uh, exhibited acute kidney injury and half of those 30% needed renal replacement therapy and uh, a third of them needed uh, to have support for liver-related uh, um, um, uh, deviation from norm. So 30% had abnormal liver functions. 20% uh, on the other hand had myocarditis and this number was variable, especially around the time when we use hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin until the evidence came out to suggest that they could be associated with myocarditis. Now, uh, about uh, less than 15% of those patients needed vasoactive treatment at all times and mostly the vasoactive treatment continued for more than a week uh, in total. Um, 
Data on the risk of secondary infection, especially pneumonias, were variable, but the majority of those patients had an, either a superadded bacterial infection or a viral infection concomitant with COVID-19. And septic shock with the multi-organ dysfunction tended to be a sequelae, but it was an uncommon scenario. Now, if we want to concentrate on the lung, because I think COVID-19 and sepsis uh, affected the lungs mostly, we talk about more or less um, lung compliance that was high and with barotrauma that affected um, a cohort of patients that pull through and they tended to be less than expected with the severe radiological features. And if I have to gamble and give a number until we get our trials results, I would say less than 20% is the number who exhibited barotrauma. But interestingly, uh, when we compare it to um, SARS-CoV, we tended to see less pneumosauruses and, uh, um, and the percentage was something like 2%. Um, people uh, from all around the world at the beginning of the pandemic had uh, difficulties in to what to start first before we contemplated on intubation. And we had a lot of issues related, um, you know, intubations and facilities to get those patient, patients to ventilation support. And that's why we advocated for uh, non-invasive maneuvering that could have generated the aerosol and uh, led to a lot of infection control issues or the use of high-flow nasal cannula. And on balance, um, the world went into two directions, the high-flow nasal cannula users and non-invasive ventilation. And uh, in general, 50-50 was the answer and there was no different outcome. But uh, people who tended to use the non-invasive techniques ended up delaying ventilation by about three to five days. But we learned later on during the wrapping up of the pandemic, and I hope we're wrapping up very soon, that early intubation led to better outcome. And obviously, we tended to uh, have a loss threshold if we have the facilities to do that, to follow the progression of the disease and to use our parameters, including the severe evolving hypercarbia and the severe hypoxemia uh, uh, associated with hemodynamic instability. And this was uh, generally uh, available in about the third of the population attending ICU. And with a ventilation management um, um, made a difference or not, um, we will yet have to wait and see, but I think it made a huge difference, the way you choose your parameters initially. And uh, the more you become patient with patients, the better the outcome was to be seen, the more you carry on having your low tidal volume ventilation sets and to avoid the high peak ventilations, we saw better outcomes with those type of uh, deals. The interesting thing is uh, COVID-19 has produced huge uh, interest around proning and proning out of all the interventions around us uh, was the cheapest maneuver and was the most evidence-based around us. And uh, in fact, it was an intervention that made the team coalesce around one goal, because to prone a patient, you need at least five members of the team. But at the same time, you need five uh, 
personal protective equipments to be available. And that was, again, a challenge. But at the end of the day, it was weighing the benefits and the risks, and it produced huge benefits and huge uh, improvements on patients' oxygenation. Um, fluid therapy was a bit of a challenge because those patients exhibited um, GIT symptoms and signs in about 20%, and they tended to present dehydrated with a lot of factors, including fever and diarrhea and the lot. But if we followed our septic guidelines, these people should be on adequate fluid management, but they tended, unfortunately, 30% to be underfilled. And that's what led to the development of renal failure in most of the case scenario. So other options that we used to um, adopt in treating people with sepsis uh, and respiratory failure in other non-COVID patients or before the COVID era were anything including pulmonary vasodilators, nitric oxide, and uh, so forth. But all of those uh, maneuvers didn't do any good to our patients or didn't produce any mortality benefit. And to be quite honest, um, the centers I worked in in the UA, we didn't have uh, enough nitric oxide, not because we don't have it, but because we didn't have the time to keep trying and erroring. We used neuromuscular blockade in less than 24 hours if we needed it, but didn't prolong the use for that. And I think we left the ECMO for one center to deal with our patients should we need it. But we didn't use enough ECMO because we didn't need ECMO except in very severe intractable uh, patients. We obviously did not forget the other measures, including proper nutrition, feeding and calories, uh, PPI cover for acidity, skin care, eye care, and all the ancillary measures we do for our regular IC patients because this is what matters. And obviously, always remember the carers, the staff who look after those patients. They need to be as good as possible to deliver this, including psychological and mental uh, support. Uh, glucosteroids, um, uh, until the uh, um, evidence came from dexamethasone as early as possible in the disease-making difference, we have been using it in critical care because ARDS, especially the moderate to severe disease, definitely there was evidence behind it that it improves. And any kind of inflammation and use corticosteroids for the outcome tends to be better. So we did not shy away from that. And I'm glad the on trial uh, helped us uh, uh, alleviate that, especially in the early COVID patients. Uh, immunosuppression uh, proposed by other um, uh, scholars, including uh, things like IL-6 inhibitors, tocizolimab, uh, hasn't been used um, 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 globally. Uh, and I'm glad that we didn't, um, particularly in this side of the world, push for it because the centers that used it in great details and great fashion, uh, you know, uh, affinity ended up having huge amount of uh, um, fungemias and uh, septic shock uh, that could be resultant from that without mortality benefits. Uh, Co-infection uh, within uh, ICU patients tended to be bacterial infections that were the normal um, hospital-acquired bugs. And uh, in certain studies that looked into 
a fair number of patients, um, although bacterial infections were the attributed uh, factors, uh, those studies coming from three different parts of the world suggested that viral infections are mostly the dual infections. And uh, for that reason, I think uh, most of us uh, clinicians ended up uh, shedding a lot of antimicrobials over those patients, assuming that this is bacterial superadded infection. And this deviated us from practicing an antimicrobial stewardship programs to the maximum. And I think I'm looking forward to data to tell us about how bad we did and how good we did regarding the MDROs um, uh, uh, that we um, have all the reasons and the jobs to stop from developing throughout the next many years in order to stop it from propagating. So in summary, within critical care, um, sepsis was an issue. But sepsis, when it was added to COVID-19 burden, was two issues. But I think the evidence so far is to deliver what is evidence-based treating sepsis and septic shock with organ failure so far and applied to COVID-19. And we succeeded in most of the case scenarios. And we had to observe those patients and frequently monitor them because the disease was too new to us. We had to look for the risk factor groups, especially the obese and people with um, uh, abnormal lung functions from before, the hypertensives, and those people just made uh, it difficult to control their ventilation at occasions. Um, but when we went simple and uh, aligned to a very specific protocol, I think the outcome tended to be better. And when we treated the disease as a viral pneumonitis and we followed the proper uh, protocol, again, we tended to win. Proning as a cheap modality was our best thing in hand, the best evidence base that we had in hand, and antimicrobial stewardship application was something that we probably shied away from doing, but I look forward to that to tell us what to do uh, and I hope not not to do in the next pandemic, I hope not to see such a pandemic, but I think within such pandemics, we should have an inbuilt uh, stewardship program so as not to uh, derail from the start. And thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Hala, for that uh, detailed, um, but also uh, quite practical presentation on management of COVID-19 in critical care setting. Um, in the interest of time, because we are a bit over time, uh, I think we won't take any questions, but I'll urge you to stay till the end of the presentation. And if we do catch up with time, then perhaps we could take a few questions that have been asked um, through the chat box. So once more, thank you very much. Cheers. Thank you. Our next presentation is going to be on COVID-19 therapeutics and what we have learned and where we are going, which is clearly a very topical presentation and also quite controversial, shall I say. And this is going. This presentation is going to be given by Marco Cavalleri, who is a pharmacologist. Marco is head of office at the Biological Health Threats and Vaccine Strategy um, head, at the head office of the Biological Health Threats and Vaccine Strategy. Um, he is chair of the European Medicines uh, Agency COVID Task Force 
and responsible for the European Medicines Agency activities for emergent pathogens, vaccines, and antimicrobial resistance. Marco, over to you. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, and uh, hello to all of you. So uh, in my presentation, essentially, I will go through uh, what has been discussed uh, in the context of the WHO Working Group on Therapeutics for COVID-19, and considering my role there as chair of this group. Uh, so uh, I will start by highlighting what were identified as the research priority as soon as the uh, pandemic uh, started. So first of all, uh, the importance of identifying candidates for clinical evaluation, uh, in addition to those that were already considered in China right at the beginning of the pandemic for clinical testing. Then, very importantly, setting up a multi-center master protocol to evaluate the, the efficacy and safety of uh, such agents. And then to have a uh, coordinated collaboration to implement all the different clinical trials that beside the multi-center master protocol uh, were going to be set up. And to have a coherent way of looking into all this evidence and try to uh, gather data so that to have a better understanding of what was working and what not. Um, so, uh, just to say at the beginning, uh, uh, of course, there were a few options to look at, in particular repurpose agents or agents that were already under investigation or have been uh, studied in preclinical models for other coronaviruses, in particular MERS and SARS. And among these, the two compounds that were identified at the beginning were the two antivirals, Rendesivir and Lopinavir-Ritonavir combination, which uh, is, is a drug already approved for the treatment of HIV, uh, but for which we had interesting data in animal models for MERS in particular. Uh, and uh, the combination with interferon beta uh, was undergoing clinical trials in Saudi Arabia for MERS. So definitely these they were the two agents identified at the beginning, but other options were considered, including different immunotherapies and the use of convalescent sera that at that point in time was not really on the table as a real option, but as we all have seen recently has emerged as an important intervention to be further studies in clinical trials. Uh, so at that time was also identified uh, uh, in the context of the research agenda which were the areas that were considered important in order to uh, move on with the evaluation of uh, agents for the treatment of COVID-19. And among these, uh, a repository list of laboratories was uh, considered important. That has been achieved to a large extent. Uh, and also, very importantly, the setup of animal models for both mild disease, but also for more severe disease. And while we ended up having some models that could be deem appropriate to investigate uh, uh, therapeutics for mild disease, we don't really have uh, established models for severe disease, uh, and that is something that we need to work on more in the near future. Uh, also importantly, the standardization of, uh, of the protocols for viral propagation was identified as an important area, um, and also the importance of having data not just in viral cell or with certain cutoff for activity, uh, but also uh, data including primary airway epithelial cells were deemed important. This is, uh, and also this would allow the interpretation of the results across different laboratories and are considered essential for the screening and selection of, uh, of candidates for uh, uh, future clinical trials. Uh, and uh, of course, we see that there is more 
work to be done. Indeed, uh, I have to say it's been a bit disappointing to see that a compound like hydroxychloroquine what was tested in primary airway epithelial cell only several months into the pandemic and after uh, the large clinical trials had already delivered important data on the role of this agent. So if these data were available earlier, probably history would have been different. Um, then another important area was immediately identified was to the setup of clinical trials for pre-exposure prophylaxis or post-exposure prophylaxis, acknowledging that for vaccines, uh, it would have been a bit of a longer journey before anything would have been ready for large clinical trials. So try to understand if there are any compounds that could have uh, uh, could play such role and therefore being properly studying clinical trials. And, uh, and for this, there have been, uh, um, considering that a number of studies were already initiated or starting uh, rapidly, it was felt important to bring together all the investigators and discuss together how to share data, and in this sense, a core data monitoring committee has been established uh, that could serve uh, as, uh, as a tool for sharing information between the different DMCs for the, from the, for the various trials. So an important role that has been appreciated by the scientific community and, and now is, is active. Uh, and of course, uh, uh, important also to think about uh, uh, setting up uh, further master protocol for this kind of uh, testing of uh, uh, future um, COVID-19 um, uh, drugs. Uh, also, not to forget the role of having adequate supply of therapeutics, so having a good overview of what is the availability and the production capacity of, of the promising candidates, and for this, the global collaboration to accelerate the development, production, and equitable access of new COVID-19 diagnostic and therapeutic vaccine is in process at WHO, together also with the COVAX initiative that allows really a, a good dialogue also with the developers in order to be sure that uh, uh, we don't have shortages and there is fair and equitable access to any of these new drugs that is emerging. Uh, now, a very important point and, uh, and an important remark from my side is that we noticed right from the start a huge amount of fragmentation in terms of clinical trials with uh, a lot of small trials, uh, you know, being started all over the world. Uh, but clearly, uh, the majority of these trials not being able to generate sufficient evidence on safety and efficacy. So the, the big plea has been to try to merge all these efforts into large clinical trials across different countries, across different investigators, so that we can get mature data on all these, uh, these treatments. And we really hope that uh, uh, from now on, uh, this process will continue with more ag aggregation and the ability of conducting large clinical trials that will be more informative. Um, and, and indeed, one of the areas said was the uh, setup of a master protocol. This has been done with the Solidarity Trial, which has been working as an important anchor at the international level for bringing together investigators and working uh, together in order to generate uh, important data that would inform regulators and public health using all cause mortality as primary outcome. Uh, so this uh, is uh, a very important uh, exercise that is continuing as we speak. Um, and, and then also trying to bring together all the emerging data from all these different randomized controlled trials in order to appraise them and synthesize what is the outcome and what can we learn from all these studies together 
in order to inform clinical practice. And as mentioned, indeed, the, the, the steroid meta-analysis just recently published is a good example of, of the relevance of doing these activities when it's done in a rigorous way and based on, on good clinical trials to start with. Uh, another point that was discussed from the beginning was the role of combination therapy. Now, this is an area that has been moving a bit uh, uh, slowly, but still there has been some progress. And now the point will be to see after the, the initial outcome from the, from the trials using monotherapy, either as antivirals or as immunomodulator, to see really how we can combine all these different uh, drugs and therapeutic modality into uh, combination therapy. Uh, uh, either in parallel or in sequence that could really increase uh, um, survival and, uh, and, and cure rate for COVID-19 patients that are hospitalized. Uh, so uh, to summarize, uh, um, uh, preclinical aspects are extremely important and these cover both uh, uh, the relevance of having good in vitro assay, particularly for putative antivirus, which should not be just vivero cell, but which should be broader, including primary human airway cells. We need suitable animal models in order to understand really uh, how to move on with the different therapeutics and particularly in the context of uh, uh, severe and critical ARDS and hyperinflammation uh, as uh, sometimes we are really struggling to see how to move on therapeutics with immunomodulatory activity for which we don't know much. Um, the, the role of new drugs for the prevention and post-exposure prophylaxis is also an important area not to be forgotten and we look forward forward to see what could be the next generation of agents, other chemicals or monoclonals that could be used in this sense. Uh, and also good, uh, good tools to have a rapid understanding of, of the value as proof of concept of any of these new agents before embarking into large phase three trials. And also last but not least, what we have been learning is that we may have to tailor the a specific drug for a specific uh, phenotype of the patient. Uh, and so we will need to have clinical trials that will be informative on what is the efficacy and safety of different therapeutic agents, but also having a better understanding when, where they could have a major impact in terms of the course of the disease and in which type of patients will be, that they will be worth uh, investigating because we think that only there probably there could be a significant effect. So this is more work to be done and is part probably of the next generation trials. All these elements will have to be incorporated and we look forward seeing indeed what the new agents that are emerging uh, could show in large clinical trials that again, they have to be large enough and well uh, constructed in order to provide us with the information that we all need for regulatory purposes and for informing public health. So I thank you very much uh, on behalf of the entirety of the therapeutic working group. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Marco, for that uh, really interesting and thought-provoking presentation on COVID-19 uh, therapeutics, current and also future research. It's really interesting. We have time for a couple of questions, if you don't mind, Marco. And the first is a question about the, um, what I would say, controversy with sort of mixed results for some of the trials and observational studies so far, for example, with hydroxychloroquine. And would um, appreciate your thoughts as a question that's come up. 
in terms of what should we be what should be should be believed um, with the controversies around results with hydroxychloroquine trials and observ observational studies, and secondly, whether there is any role you think for hydroxychloroquine in early disease because the trials may have been um, used hydroxychloroquine mainly for moderate or severe disease. No, thanks for the question. Indeed, uh, uh, we are all looking into the role of observational studies in informing clinical practice and decision on which therapeutics might be effective in treatment of, of a number of diseases and for COVID-19 as well. Uh, the problem that really emerged here is that uh, we need to be sure about the, the, the data source, about the quality of the data that underpins the evaluation from these observational studies. And of course, not forgetting that unavoidably, observational studies are more prone to biases than randomized controlled trial. So uh, uh, regretfully, regretfully, we have to be reminded here of the importance of conducting rigorous research. Uh, also, when it comes to observational studies, if we want uh, uh, these studies to be believed as important and informative, uh, I think that still they play a role and we should continue to use them. But what is emerging here with COVID-19 is that definitely to have a good understanding of the activities of therapeutics, we need uh, uh, randomized controlled trials. Uh, this is the only way of having some definitive answer on the efficacy of these agents. And hydroxychloroquine indeed is a good demonstration uh, that uh, the large trials of so solidarity and recovery have been able to show that indeed these agents are not providing a benefit in terms of mortality for hospitalized patients. Now, coming to your point of whether they could have a value in earlier treatment, uh, I have to, to say that, of course, uh, only clinical trials can tell us uh, um, at the end of the day. However, uh, I'm quite concerned about all the emerging preclinical data, both from animal models and from these in vitro studies using uh, lung epithelial cells in which they show that hydroxychloroquine is not really active as an antiviral. So I think this uh, poses a number of questions on whether it would be worth uh, to progress study on hydroxychloroquine in light uh, of this evidence. Thank you very much, Marco, for that enlightening um, response. And uh, in inches of time, I think we'll also move to the next speaker. So thank you very much. Thank you to you. So our next presentation is going to be about mobile emergency care units and Ebola sepsis, um, how that improves uh, Ebola sepsis survival. And the presentation is going to be given by Richard Cogen. And Richard is a clinician physician who has been engaged in low and middle income regions for more than 15 years mainly practicing emergency medicine, intensive care, and also polyvalent critical care. He has been involved in developing and using the portable biosecurity emergency care unit, which is a, a, um, acronym CUBE, has been used to optimize the care for patients with Ebola viral um, disease. Richards is a specialist physician in ICU and in anesthesiology, currently working in collaboration with different teaching hospitals and multiple partners with international research societies across Africa, Europe, and North America. Um, floor is over to you, Richard. Thank you. Thank you. We are also, uh, we are to share our experience from uh, the uh, portable biosecurity care unit 
as cube, what we call cube in, in, in French. So, and uh, also uh, the sepsis, sepsis care in Ebola context. So from the introduction, introduction um, I will say that uh, we know that uh, the Ebola virus disease was uh, first uh, discovered more than 40 years ago following the first outbreak in DRC and in Sudan. So we know also that uh, the patients who often bring back the Ebola virus disease from the countries with low resource to the high income countries have always uh, received optimal care, optimal standard care. So the lab for uh, good diagnosis and uh, for uh, monitoring for all metabolic disorders. Then in addition, experimental drugs have always been available in compliance with the standard of care in each country. So from those uh, rich countries, the septic patient always received the best sportive care. But in contrast, we know that um, the Ebola virus disease patient from the low income setting have been provided with uh, minimal minimal care services during many, many outbreaks. So the objective was to protect health workers and health facilities from the, the, the contamination. And I, we think that uh, this is one of the reasons for high mortality of Ebola virus disease in Africa, particularly for uh, sepsis case under uh, Ebola context. To address this gap in supportive care for Ebola virus, virus disease patients, we developed the portable biosecure in it as CUBE. So the, the, the CUBE is, a, is a, the transparent room, the single transparent room, which one offer a, a nine meter square uh, for the patient and for the earth workers inside the cube. So inside the cube, we have a control on uh, temperature and, uh, and the pressure. And with the cube, we can, uh, with the cube, the intensive care and the critical care become possible in the most remote, remote village. So what's the benefit with, uh, with the cube? With the cube, the monitoring become permanent and the global one. So monitoring, clinical monitoring and the lab monitoring become possible with the point of care as biochemistry, biology, hematology. So also we introduce the uh, hemoculture technique in, uh, in uh, our context. Talking about hemoculture technique, uh, let me say that this is also possible uh, uh, in partnership with IMT, which one is uh, Institute Medical Tropical from Belgium, and also in partnership with INRB, which one is Institute National for Research Biology in, uh, in, from Kinshasa in DRC. So we did it at the end of uh, at the end of uh, the last outbreak in East DRC. The second one is uh, uh, that. Uh, 
uh, in this context in the, with Cube, it was possible for us to introduce the ultrasound for hemodynamic monitoring and the lungs, heart, and kidney uh, monitoring become possible with the, this approach. And the third one, it become possible for us to individualize uh, uh, the critical care uh, uh, in, for, in, in our context for the patient, for the Ebola patient in a, in a, in a context with, uh, with uh, low, low resource. So from our last experience in West Africa, also in con Ebola context, this approach with the cube changed completely our, our life, I can say, for us as uh, health workers. But this has changed also life for the patient. So the patient now with uh, this approach can stay uh, in a real hospital environment close with uh, his family and if uh, close with the health workers permanently. So with this approach, it become possible for us to implement, and we implemented the Optima's clinic care protocol for Ebola virus disease, which one was validated by the national authorities in, in DRC. So the mental care also become possible with this approach. And as you can, as we can uh, see from the study, RCT study, which one is, was a drug study, clinical study in, uh, in uh, Ebola context, show that uh, um, um, demonstrate a, a significantly reduction of mortality for those patients who consulted uh, uh, early. And, uh, and uh, the technique for remoculture, as I say, uh, become possible in this context. And we did it in partnership, as I say, with uh, different partners. And this is, uh, I want just to share, to show some device one we introduced in, uh, in this context for good monitoring for the patient and the supportive care. And uh, um, for short observation uh, from our experience regarding uh, 120 patients who died in uh, our context for the patient to stay longer in, uh, in uh, hospitalization, what we saw that it was uh, that uh, from their admission, they came with a high number of, uh, of uh, leukocyte cells, if we can see well in hematology, high number of uh, leukocyte cells, and also with uh, high temperature and other disturbance regarding the param biochemistry par parameter as a CRP. So when, they st when we start the uh, supportive care, the number of leukocyte cells decrease for those patients who stay longer before death, and their temperature decrease also, and the CRP also decrease, and all mediator inflammation decrease. But one week after, uh, eight days, what we saw is that the, the, the leukocyte cell number of leukocyte cells start again to increase in the same way with CRP, CRP and temperature also increase and the lactate also increase and the pH decrease. So this patient after uh, more than 10 days, they died in, uh, because of uh, septic shock and uh, multiple organ fire. 
So this is for the patient who stay longer before the day. But those other category of patient or the group of patient who stay not long time in our hospitalization, but they stay within four, eight hours, those patients, the probable cause for this patient dead was uh, uh, the delay of the perfusion, uh, liquid and electrolyte perfusion. Um, so, but nevertheless, in both of different group patients, there are various other aspects that still need to be analyzed. The whole virological and immunological dynamics and also the use of therapy, uh, experimental drugs. This is uh, just to share with you that uh, some point of care we introduce in uh, approach with CUBE regarding to for good monitoring for uh, biochemistry, hematology, and the gas for, for the patient. This one just to show that uh, the, the hematology at the admission for the patient, the number of leukocytes was high and then decreased uh, progressively for those patients who died uh, who stay longer in our hospitalization before died. So this data is just only for the patient who died. So we want to focus uh, specifically on uh, uh, some parameter from their hematology. So from those, from this, uh, from this observation, this observation lead us to individualize the critical care for the patient in our context, for example, by anticipating uh, the administration for uh, the, the vasopressure drug administration for those patients, uh, septic patients. So also this observation lead us, as I told, to, to, to introduce the technical culture for specific antibiotic in our context. And I can say that uh, for, uh, for the future, the PCT, procalcitonin, PCT, should be done systematically in Ebola context. This is possible now safely and with the approach by tube. So we hope that in the future, more objective data will help to implement appropriate protocol for anti-effective management of Ebola virus disease patient. So before can I finish, I want just to share with you this illustration for one for this complex case for which one was a patient, 30 years old man confirmed Ebola virus disease, which one was admitted in May last year. And this patient died after uh, 18 days in hospitalization in our, our, our tube. So as you can see, uh, from the, their admission, this patient had a high temperature and high CRP and uh, high viremia. So when we start uh, 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 with a sportive care and good monitoring, what you can see, so the temperature decrease and the CRP decrease and all mediator inf inflammatory decrease and also the viremia decrease. So, but 10 days after, as you can see in the graph, 
the temperature start to increase again, the speed uh, uh, supportive care, the temperature increase again in the same way with, uh, with uh, the number of uh, leukocyte cells and the CRP and also uh, uh, the lactate also increase. And this patient died, died uh, uh, 18 days after uh, admission in a, a septic shock with multiple organ fire. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Richard, for that uh, really excellent and inspiring um, presentation. You've shown how um, an innovation can have an impact on early monitoring, on monitoring early diagnosis of deterioration in patients with Ebola viral disease and how that can also have an impact on, on um, how supportive care can also have an impact on mortality all things which are very relevant for Ebola viral disease and also sepsis. Uh, you also highlighted the difference in mortality in the Western world where patients have been diagnosed with Ebola viral disease and also in parts of Africa where we've had outbreaks of Ebola viral disease. And a question I would wonder is, do you, what, do you have any data so far to suggest that the portable biosecurity emergency care unit, the CUBE, has had an impact on mortality, and also what is the impact also on health-seeking behaviors for 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 um, the population when if, if they've seen that being now able to maybe access uh, good quality care. So at uh, this time it's a, it's a, it's a little bit complicated. It's not uh, I, I can say it's a little bit complicated to say just only the uh, the cube to introducing the cube and uh, and uh, it's. Uh, improve mortality. So at this time, it's uh, complicated to demonstrate because in this context, we introduce many things in the same time, not only the cube, but we use also drugs, experimental drugs. So we, we uh, ameliorate uh, 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 supportive care. So there is many, many factors can, uh, can uh, there is many many aspects can uh, in the same time those different factors can explain that why the the the, the, the mortality decrease you know for when uh, if we, we we see well uh, regarding the the study in uh, we did in this context so there are many factors not only the cure but also the drugs. The supportive care, this is the reason can explain why the number of mortality decrease. But I think that uh, introducing the cube in this context in, uh, in, a, in a country with low resources, this has changed completely uh, uh, our approach. This has changed the life for the patient. This has changed the life for our uh, as uh, health workers because, you know, the, one of the complications from Ebola uh, disease is the shocks. So without the cube, it's complicated to have a good monitoring, permanent one monitoring for the patient. It's very complicated without the cube because you can, it will not be possible to stay close with the patient to maintain a good monitoring. So it's very necessary for, for, for us, I think, uh, the cube is very, very important to ameliorate 
continue to ameliorate the care for the patient, not only for Ebola disease, but for different other uh, patients who need uh, uh, intensive care or critical care. Thank you, Richard. It clearly gives hope for healthcare workers uh, to be able to look after the patients safely and also for the population who can access, who can access care, uh, good quality care by, with this innovation. Um, what about the cost and the scalability of the cube? So the, the cost of, uh, of the, the cube is uh, uh, one cube, the cube with all uh, device. So it's uh, 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 sixteen thousand uh, dollars. Ex excellent. Thank you very much, uh, Richard. And um, I think if we have some time at the end as well, we may take some other questions. Clearly, really useful presentation, and thank you for for that. Um, so we're going to move on to the next uh, presentation, and it's on the inflammatory response due to COVID nineteen infection. And our presenter, uh, last but certainly not the least, is uh, Yi Sin Liu. And Yi Sin is the executive director of the National Center for Infectious Diseases in Singapore. As an adult infectious disease specialist, Yi Sin has led her team through multiple outbreaks in Singapore, which in include the um, nipovirus, SARS, Zika virus and multiple surges of dengue fever, as well as uh, monkeypox in May 2019. So clearly um, somebody who has been involved in a lot of emerging infections, and we look forward to her presentation. The floor is yours, Yi Sin. And uh, thank you for giving me this opportunity to be with you this evening. Let me just quickly introduce uh, where I am right now. So you can see Singapore uh, is, is, is a dot in the Southeast Asia. And what we have done in the recent years is to establish the National Center for Infectious Disease, a central piece in Singapore to be able to manage outbreak. Next. Now, coming back to um, COVID-19, I'm sure all of us would know that uh, China made the first discovery as well as report on COVID-19. And this is what from the uh, researchers from uh, China uh, putting together all the informations and then ask the questions that the clinical presentations of COVID-19 in fact fit very nicely into virus sepsis. And what they have uh, described so far is patients presenting with shock, cold extremities, with multiple organ involvement. And that puts together the informations as the proposal that this indeed is a viral illness that leads to sepsis. And they further on describe the uh, situations to put together the, the concept. So first of all is the clinical manifestations that fit very nicely into the concept of sepsis with multi-organ failure. And they then describe pro-inflammatory cytokine response, showing you the elevations of pro-inflammatory uh, cytokine. And in addition to that, there's a significant depressions in the, in the lymphocyte with significant lymphopenia with peripheral drops in terms of the CD4 and CD8 count. And the, the author then subsequently asked these questions and the clinical phenomena and as, as well as histological phenomena, whether there is an effect of direct viral invasions 
or it's a systematic cytokine reactions, or indeed it could be a presentation of both. And I think most people by now are very familiar, in fact, uh, what uh, sepsis means. A lot of exuberance, uh, uh, inflammatory reactions, the uh, dysregulations of the immune functions that subsequently lead to multi-organ failure. And let's have a quick look in terms of how the immune system functions in the human body. We have adaptive, we have immediately there's an inner immunity followed by adaptive immunity. Adapt, the inner immunities will kickstart the defense against the virus almost immediately when it comes into contact with the invading pathogens. And the entire immune system is orchestrated in the way to protect the human from the pathogens. And the whole systems of reactions usually is orchestrated and is a balance of the system in terms of pro-inflammation as well as the regulations so that we can return to normal as quickly as possible. However, you know, in, in COVID, uh, today, we know the entire clinical spectrum of clinical illness from asymptomatic cases to very mild disease to the next spectrum of very severe clinical manifestations. So in certain individuals where the virus can be well controlled right at the beginning of the clinical illness, they recover from COVID-19. However, in small subset of individuals because of the exuberant immune response, that leading to productions of cytokines and subsequently of what is being coined as cytokine storm and further damage the organ and for the small minority of individuals that then succumb to the infection. And this is to show you the spectrum of the extreme where patients succumb to the severe disease. So from the histology, you can see these significant destructions of the, the pulmonary, of the alveoli, as well with the, the formations of the hindline membrane in the, in the post-mortem finding that we can see from here. And in addition to that, a closer look in terms of the infiltrating cells. So from here, you can see that there are a lot of the lymphocytes being infiltrated and being at the destroyed lung tissues. And this is um, um, a further look in terms of using electron microscopy, looking at the, the invasions of the virus itself. So this is uh, looking at the respiratory system from the upper respiratory systems down to the, the, down to the lung tissues, the alveoli, clearly showing you the viron is present in the upper respiratory tract as well as presence in the lung tissues as well as that presence in the macrophages in the lung. So here, you know, many of the postmortems show significant tissue damage with a lot of infiltrations of the, um, uh, in the reactive cells as well as direct invasions of the virus into the lung tissue. And I think most of you will be quite familiar here that not only the lung tissues, that is, we can see the viron as well as inflammatory response, here you can look at the endothelial tissue as well, showing you direct viral invasions. You see the virus particles in the, the, the endothelium, as well as lots of infiltration cells uh, around the injured uh, tissue. And not only that, uh, this hypercoagulable states is something that uh, we are seeing a lot of reports uh, of patients that do badly with uh, COVID-19. And this is one of the features that you see 
with the very gross formations of the clot showing pulmonary embolism. Now, this is a, a very nice article that actually put together the concept of the hyperimmune reactions to the invasions of the virus. And here the authors present this idea of direct invasions of the virus as the virus factors leading to pro-inflammatory reactions as well as the renin angiotensin exist response and hypercoagulable states. Now what is important here is that all this vicious cycle that is introduced by the virus, in fact, are all in play all at the same time. Now, coming back to the virus, the virus itself uh, looks for ACE2, in, ACE2 receptors to gain attachment and again uh, into the, uh, the human tissues. Here, you can see that the virus, in fact, possess a very unique features where it interfere with the attachment, interfere with the uh, productions of the pro-inflammatory response, it interfere with... Uh, interferon uh, with the uh, ability, inability for the human host to be able to overcome the virus, leading to virus replications in the upper tract uh, when the virus enters into the human body. And at this point in time, we actually explain as to the reason why there is high level of viral replications at the early phase of clinical illness and leading to the high speed of transmissions of the virus among the human. And because of the inability to control viral replications, there is a migrations and invasions of the virus into the lower pulmonary tract. And again, the virus interfere with the immune response with an exuberance productions of the cytokine. And this is a classical example <clears throat> of the higher productions of interleukin-6 with alpha uh, TNF that giving rise to the entire cytokine storm that the patient experienced. And here you can see that uh, we put together the, uh, the diagram showing you the exuberance productions of cytokine, and that leads to multiple organ involvement in that uh, hyperinflammatory states uh, of the COVID-19. And here um, the authors then present the idea of bringing angiotensin's uh, uh, vicious cycle with the depletions of ACE receptor. In fact, it enhanced the secretions of TNF-alpha and therefore bring in even more cytokines. And uh, because of the depletions of uh, ACE2, there is this vasoconstrictions effect leading to more tissue damage, leading to more tissue fibrosis. And this is one another vicious cycles that we see in the patients that <clears throat> being induced by COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2 uh, virus. And to the hypercoagulable states, I think uh, today uh, most of you would understand that D-dimer is one of the, uh, the features that closely related, uh, associated with hypercoagulable states, together with an elevations uh, of the uh, inflammatory markers. With all this understanding, let me introduce to you the um, local research uh, in my centre. We established a longitudinal cohort under the PROTECT uh, study. And uh, this is the core that we support multiple activities that include studying transmissions, using the cohort to understand the clinical trials study, 
the, the diagnostic capability, as well as the important thing is to understand the pathogenesis. And of today, we have recruited more than 600 individuals, well-characterized clinical characters into the PROTECT study. In the interest of time, I will quickly show you some of the key findings that we have. So what we had done is to look at different patients' severity, <clears throat> different clinical phenotypes, comparing patients without pneumonia, patients with pneumonia, and hypoxemia. And from here, you can clearly see the difference in terms of the inflammatory response in this particular group of individuals. You can see the elevations of uh, C-reactive protein, elevations of IL-6. However, the total white remains relatively stable across the three different uh, groups uh, of patients. If you were to look across the right-hand sides, looking at the group of patients with pneumonia and hypoxemia, in fact, you see more of the positive significant factors, more than patients that just with COVID pneumonia without hypoxemia. So this is a longitudinal cohort. What we have done in the top panel here that you can see is to look at the longitudinal tracking of the inflammatory markers as well as the lung <coughs> uh, damage uh, markers. But the more important thing is to look at the middle portions. You can see that when you compare healthy individuals with patients that with mild clinical illness, patients with pneumonia without hypoxemia, and the extreme right uh, box, you see patients with pneumonia and hypoxemia. So the heat map shows you the difference in terms of the cytokine response. And here we clearly demonstrate to you that the patients with pneumonia and hypoxemia has much, much higher elevations of inflammatory and cytokine markers. And we attempt to look into the relationship of the different markers. And this is one of the studies that we did trying to examine whether IL-6 could be one of the, um, the, the, key, the key target that we can use in terms of clinical therapeutics, whether or not anti-IL-6 uh, would be one of the good therapeutic arms that we can experiment on. Then we went on to do further study looking at the particular um, uh, peripheral uh, white cell in the same group of cohorts. We looked at patients with normal, healthy individuals compared with patients with pneumonia as, as compared to patients with pneumonia that without um, hypoxemia and patients with pneumonia with hypoxemia and into two groups, those that without needing to go to ICU and a group that needs to go to ICU. But important thing here I want to show you is basically on the top row and bottom row to show you the difference in terms of the immature leukocyte that we found in our populations. So although the peripheral total white number remain relatively stable, but when we break down into different cells types, we realize that the immature neutrophil, in fact, outnumber and became a significant marker to differentiate patients with more severe disease compared to patients with milder clinical illness. And for situations with IL-6 and some of the cytokine that is difficult or not available for testing, perhaps looking at immature neutrophil could be a relatively good marker uh, to focus on.
And if you just concentrate on the right bottom angle, showing you the comparisons of using IL-6 as well as IL-10 in correlations to the immature lymphocytes, you can see a very nice correlations. The higher the level of IL-6 than IL-10 is highly correlated with a higher number of immature uh, lymphocytes. This slightly represents the kind of myeloid response where there is immature lymphocytes in circulations and there is possible migrations of the lymphocyte into the lung damaged tissue. Now, how do we bring back all these informations into clinical management? So here you can see that um, in clinical manifestations, we have two groups that we pay specific attention to, patient with pneumonia and patient with pneumonia with hypoxemia. So from our studies, we've clearly been able to, to demonstrate that patients with pneumonia and hypoxemia has a very different cytokine profile compared to patients with pneumonia without hypoxemia. So it's likely that this explains the current finding as to the use of anti-inflammations uh, such as steroid that is useful and with more clinical benefit if you were to use it in a more severe clinical illness those patients with hypoxemia. And possibly this is a sweet spot that we have to look at as to when to be able to start anti-inflammatory agent in order to stop and arrest the uh, cytokine storm in patients with pneumonia and hypoxemia. I think this is my last slide. Um, I, I think without the entire teams behind me, uh, none of all this uh, research and clinical management uh, can happen uh, on behalf of the team, I would like to thank uh, WHO for giving me this opportunity to present our work and also to look into the issues of uh, information uh, in COVID-19. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Yi Sin, for that really uh, useful, interesting presentation uh, demonstrating how COVID-19 can cause viral uh, sepsis. Um, just a, a, a one question, if you, if you don't mind. Uh, there is uh, there've been a number of questions about how you can differentiate in a patient with COVID nineteen sepsis caused by the virus and sepsis caused by bacterial superinfection. I wonder whether you had any thoughts about that and potentially maybe comment on the role of biomarkers such as procalcitonin. Yeah, thank you. Um, so in our cohort that uh, we put together, uh, most of the patients, in fact, um, the ICU number is, is not fantastically big and uh, antibiotics by then uh, would not be a big factor in terms of the uh, bacterial treatment. So we do have very nice clinical, uh, uh, clinical cohort where we can clearly classify them as a viral pneumonia rather than superimposed bacterial pneumonia. And with that group, we have clearly demonstrated the cytokine productions, the differentiations, and uh, I think we, we, we could demonstrate quite well in terms of the viral effect in causing the cytokine uh, reactions. Excellent. Uh, thank you very much, Yusin, for that great presentation and also for taking that uh, question and a very clear answer. Um, I would just like to ask uh, Dr. Hala, who is still on and um, didn't have a chance to, to take a question, but if um, she's, I think she's still on to take this question, which is about, and, and it's linked to the question I've just asked uh, Yi Sin, 
and that in your experience during the COVID-19 surge in, in um, Abu Dhabi, UAE, how do you think uh, we can maintain antimicrobial stewardship and what was the potential impact of antimicrobial use on antimicrobial resistance where you worked? Uh, well, uh, thank you, Emmanuel, for this very important question. And the short answer to that is we don't know. But I think if we stick to basics, I think we could find our way. Now, basically, I think globally or within our cohort of patients that we dealt with in critical care areas, we did not have the enough time or the expertise to really guard our antimicrobial stewardship programs. Because patients, when they hit the ICU units, we started looking for a war zone kind of treatment. We wanted the intensivist to guide the way and to have everybody who's collaborating in the treatment to try and help out since it was very, very overwhelming. But having said that, when we had protocolized approaches uh, in some hospitals, the outcome was better protocolized approaches and dedicated microbiologists at the end of the line helping out. This definitely reduced the uh, uh, abuse of antimicrobials, especially at the first uh, instant when patients presented with the similar uh, symptoms and signs. Now, the impact that I've seen vividly was actually the surge of MDROs and candidemia. We had some candida oris cases uh, in certain pockets of critical care units. And when we link that uh, to uh, patients and uh, uh, use of antimicrobials, we found that by and large, the um, uh, uh, prolonged use of um, uh, devices like uh, central lines uh, and the prolonged use of um, uh, steroids was probably a risk factor for those patients. Uh, uh, the uh, MDROs, from the bacteriology point of view, were mainly the carpapenem-resistant organisms, but they tended to be uncommon, but they were available. So if I have to give a number, it was definitely less than 5% of the cohort within critical care. And again, we went again and revised our strategies, and we went again and reset things, uh, things started to improve. We saw in a small uh, category of patients some Acinetobacter biomani affecting those patients as well. And this brought a lot of challenges regarding dual treatment versus one uh, uh, treatment strategy, colistin or tegacycline-colistin com combination, especially amid renal failure in those patients. So I think we saw it in scattered uh, proportions. It was not very uncommon, but it was common. And I think our practices had something to do with it. And if we want to prevent it, we have to really uh, go back to basics, revise, review, and have our multidisciplinary teams uh, being there within the pandemic. And the pandemic uh, has its challenges. But I think once we had that focus, I think we got it right. But that was towards the end. Thank you. Yeah, so I, I would just add on in terms of uh, what that mentions about multidisciplinary approach. I think those those are extremely important because uh, COVID-19 not only affecting the lung, uh, but many other organs as well. So we do bring in a multidisciplinary team into the ICU setting to take care of patients. And infectious disease clinicians are always there and uh, antimicrobial stewardships is always presence because of the uh, infectious disease uh, physicians as one of the active partner in uh, taking care of patients. So currently, we are now looking into our own data and asking the questions of antibiotic use during the, the, 
the um, uh, the epidemic during during the high period uh, of the COVID cases in Singapore, as well as not forgetting non-COVID cases, regular cases, whether or not there's any change in the antibiotic practicing uh, behavior. So hopefully, you know, this study will be able to give us a bit more insight in terms of how we manage antibiotic uh, against new invading pathogens as well as regular routine use. Excellent. Uh, thank you really for that. Those excellent uh, an answers. Um, so we've, I think we're coming to the end of the fourth session on sepsis Ebola COVID-19, the fourth session of the World Sepsis Congress um, Spotlight 2020. But just a few closing remarks. The first is to say that the sessions have all been recorded and um, we would urge you to visit the website, our website, which is www.wsc-spotlight.org. Please do visit the website and then sign the World Sepsis Declaration. Advocacy for sepsis improvement is a key objective of the Global Sepsis Alliance. So we urge you to really support the, world's, the Global Sepsis Alliance and the WHO in organizing this event by signing the World Sepsis Declaration. And please also follow the World Sepsis Congress uh, Spotlight on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and, and share. And uh, the sessions have been recorded, and they will be uh, put onto YouTube and also put uh, onto Apple Podcasts uh, as a podcast starting from the 15th of September. So from the 15th of September, every week, there will be one session of this Congress that will be released on YouTube and also Apple Podcasts, which you can access starting the 15th of September. And also I'd like to finish by thanking the WHO Global Sepsis Alliance and most importantly, all our speakers for today that have done a brilliant job of presenting on this um, very important topic. And I'm sure if we were face-to-face -face in a conference room, you would find you would hear a loud cheer and uh, claps in the background. Once more, thank you. Thank you to all the speakers and have a nice rest of the day, morning, or good night. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, and thanks to everybody who contributed to making this event possible. The next session will be Session 5, A Comprehensive and Integrated Approach to Preventing Sepsis and AMR, next Tuesday, October 13, 2020. We hope you tune in then.